It's good, isn't it, to sing God's Word? We come now to the part of our service where we hear from God's Word, having been encouraged by singing it to one another. I hope we're encouraged as we read it together. If you have your Bible there, please do open to Mark chapter 8. We're back in Mark after we took a break from that last week. Uh, it was great to have John Graham with us. And uh, certainly I was very encouraged uh, by what John preached to us from Philippians chapter 1. Uh, but we're back today in Mark's Gospel. And just as a reminder, Jesus is in Gentile country. He has uh, spoken to the Syrophoenician woman, you'll remember she begged for crumbs from the table. And Jesus healed her daughter from demon possession and then he went on to heal a man who was deaf. And mute. These healing miracles took place in Gentile country. We were still in Gentile country then as we come to chapter 8. Starting reading in verse 1, this is God's word. In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said them, he set them also before them. So they ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about four thousand. And he sent them away. Immediately got into the boat with the disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Surely I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgot to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the, se the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. So he said to them, How is it? You do not understand. We end our reading there and thank God that he blesses us when we read his truth. 
Folks, do have your Bibles open there at Mark chapter 8 as we work through this. We are, uh, as I say, coming to the end of our series in Mark. Uh, I think the end of chapter 8 is a good place to, to take a pause. And we'll be looking at something else for the summertime and, and something new in September time. Well, we'll come back and finish Mark at some stage. But chapter 8 is a good place to, to take a pause. It's, it's the midpoint in terms of chapter count, but it's also the midpoint in terms of narrative and story. You remember that the gospel began with this sentence, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we see over and over again in these first eight chapters, the identity of Jesus as the Son of God is continually being proven to us through the things Jesus is doing, and through the way Jesus is doing them. And it's being proven to us through the things Jesus is teaching and the way he is teaching them. But next week, we're going to come to the place that after eight chapters, after many, many miracles, after lots and lots of time, the penny finally drops for the disciples about who they've been spending all this time with, that he is the Christ the Son of God. And the question of who Jesus is, but maybe more importantly, why Jesus came, <coughs> is to the front of our passage today. I think we, can, we need to, to look into the reason why the God of the universe, the everlasting God, the, the second person of the Trinity, who made the heavens and the earth, why would he come to this world in the flesh? Well, in the Gospel account of Mark, and even in our passage today, we get clues. But those clues continue to be misinterpreted by the disciples and the Pharisees. In fact, they're often totally misunderstood. The very people who we don't expect to understand. The Gentiles, the outsiders, the, the tax collectors and sinners. Those are the people who see who Jesus is. Who hear his word and why he has come into the world. I think in order to, to think about this, it might be helpful for us to think about why Jesus chose to perform the miracles he did. Think, think about what we've seen Jesus do in this gospel so far. We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him heal an issue of blood. We've seen him heal a deaf man. He's fed great multitudes of people. We've even seen him raise the dead. Why do you think Jesus chose to do those things? Or, or maybe more pointedly, why didn't he do the many other things that would have been possible for him to do? Why didn't, why didn't he cure boldness? Not look at anyone in particular. Why, why didn't he cure diabetes? Why didn't he cure cancer? The reason is here in our passage today, if we look for it. The reason Jesus did the things that he did was to add a physical and real-world dimension to the words he was teaching. Just like when we, when we take the sacraments, they, they add a physical dimension to the words of Jesus. And Jesus used the miracles that he did as a, a demonstration a demonstration of his ultimate power 
to bring forgiveness of sins and to bring everlasting life to all who would believe in him and feed on his word. Let me say that again. Jesus used the miracles he did perform as a demonstration of his ultimate power to bring forgiveness of sins and everlasting life to all who will believe on him and feed on his word. And so the casting out of demons, we can realise it's not only about healing individuals from demonic possession. It's about cleansing evil from a person. Similarly with the woman who, is, who was bleeding, her, her bleeding made her unclean. And Jesus' healing made her clean. It was a demonstration of Jesus' authority to cleanse, to forgive sins. He even said as much when he healed the paralyzed man in chapter 2. Can you remember all the way back to, to chapter 2? The man that was led in through the roof. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? He said, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. The healing of the deaf man, which we saw a couple of weeks ago, again, it's a key example. We still use this sort of language in our uh, world today, don't we? Jesus often says in the Gospels, he who has ears, let him hear. And we know, because we say the same sort of thing, that Jesus doesn't just mean for people to hear, he means for them to understand. He means for them to believe. And so with the healing of the deaf man in chapter 7, Jesus is really teaching something spiritual. <clears throat> He's teaching we will only understand if we listen to him. If we're given faith to believe by the Holy Spirit. And so as we turn to our passage today, we have three scenes. And we've seen all of these things before in Mark's Gospel. We have another feeding, we have another confrontation with the Pharisees, and we have another sea crossing with the disciples. Let's look first at the other, the second feeding miracle. If you think we're covering old ground, you're almost right. If you scan back to chapter 6, you'll see in chapter 6 we had the feeding of the 5,000. Feeding of the 5,000 was the count of men, not including women and children, and this is the feeding of the 4,000, which counts everyone. There are a few other significant details that are different. The number of loaves is seven here, it's not five. The number of fish is a few, it's not two. The number of baskets of leftovers is seven and not twelve. Another big, big difference is the location of the miracle. Remember, Jesus is in Gentile territory. That's significant. According to Mark, this happened in those days, which is a reference to when Jesus was in the Decapolis, Gentile territory. He's in the wilderness around the Decapolis. So that the, the feeding of the 5,000, well, that was a feeding miracle for the nation of Israel. And remember, we noted when we looked at it that Jesus is the good shepherd who feeds and cares for his people. 
here we see Jesus doing this exact same thing for Gentile people. He even remarks to the disciples that he has compassion for the multitude. Is not what a shepherd sounds like? He has compassion for the sheep. This is so significant. It means the kingdom of God, which at one time was, was so closely and tightly related to the nation of Israel, well, it's now being opened up to the Gentile people. A couple of weeks ago, we saw this Syrophoenician woman, and, and she begged for crumbs from the table. But now, Jesus isn't throwing crumbs to the dogs. He's feeding the Gentiles bread from his very hand. These people have followed Jesus out into the wilderness and they're, they're so wrapped up in his teaching that they'd gone without food for days and days. Jesus believes that they would faint if they tried to walk back home. And so, we see that those who have followed Jesus in order to be fed by his word, to be fed spiritual and heavenly bread of his teaching. Well, they are miraculously fed by the earthly bread he provides. Again, a major thing for us to learn from this miracle. It's not just a, a simple, uh, sorry, a, a random miracle to demonstrate Jesus' power over the physical world. It does that. But it also points us to a spiritual reality. It's a miracle with a teaching point from Jesus. And the point is, he feeds us. We have everything we need from his very hand. And so we should trust him for the spiritual and the heavenly food that comes from his word week by week by week as we come into worship. And we should be able to claim that the 5,000 and the 4,000 that we ate and we're fit. As we leave this place on a Sunday, we've been fed the bread of heaven from the word of God. We also trust by faith that at the end of following Jesus through the wilderness of this life, this life is a wandering pilgrimage through the wilderness. And we don't just do it for three days, we do it for a lifetime. We're fed spiritually by the heavenly bread of his word week after week. But at the end of that, when we're faint, when we can take it no longer, Jesus will call us to be with himself. And we shall never hunger or thirst again. Isn't that a great way for Christians to think about death? At the end of the, the wilderness wandering of this life, through the ups and downs, the successes, the failures, the energy, the weariness, the sickness and the health, one day we will pass into the next scene of time. And those who are trusting in Jesus, those who have followed him, who have fed on his word in this life, we will sit at his feet, be fed by his hand, we will eat and be filled. Then we come to the second scene, which is another confrontation with the Pharisees immediately after the miracle. See, the Pharisees are not interested in Jesus' teaching. They don't want to be fed by his word. And the reason for that 
is the Pharisees are confronted by Jesus. He confronts them with their sin and their hypocrisy. You see in verse 11, the Pharisees demand a, a sign from Jesus about who he is. But of course they're not really looking for a sign. They want to trap Jesus. They're looking for a reason to get rid of him, or at least discredit him. I think that's obvious to us if we stop and think about it for even a moment. What has Jesus been doing up to this point? He's been doing signs. He's been performing miracle after miracle after miracle. What more could the Pharisees need? Healing the sick? Check. Walking in water? Check. Casting out demons? Check. Making fish and bread appear from nowhere in order to feed thousands of people? Check. Raising the dead? Check. And after all of this, Pharisees are still stuck in unbelief. Do they really think another miracle will convince them? But we know it won't. We live on this side of the resurrection. And even that sign from heaven, the, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, well, that didn't convince the Pharisees. The Pharisees have a problem with Jesus because he tells them that their self-righteousness is sinful. And people who are self-righteous hate to be called sinful. We see that in our days as much as they did then. So the miracles of Jesus are physical demonstrations of the gospel he is preaching. A gospel of salvation for sinners who will repent. A gospel that says, you are hungry, you are about to faint, here's some bread. A gospel that says, you are stuck in your sin, and there's nothing you can do to get yourself out of it. All the, the rule keeping, all the cleansing rituals, none of that will cut it. You can't be good enough to clean the sin from your heart. Instead, you need to realise that you need rescue. You need to realise that, that you are starving and that you have no bread. You need help from the outside. You are dead in sin. Floating face down in the water. You can't help yourself. But Jesus can see you. Jesus is help from the outside. Well, the thing about the Pharisees, the thing about self-righteous people is they hate that sort of teaching because it puts them on the same footing as everyone else. If what Jesus teaches is true, and it is, then the Pharisees can't lord it over the sinners and tax collectors. All of us, every last one of us, are sinners before a holy God. It's only by trusting in Jesus it's only by, by trusting that he has paid the penalty for your sin. It's only by accepting the bread that he offers that you will be saved. And so the Pharisees' problem is not that they need another sign. The Pharisees' problem is that they refuse to believe. And this is what Jesus has in mind as he leaves the Pharisees and gets into the boat with the disciples. And so we come to the third scene in our passage another sea crossing. And Jesus is teaching the disciples in the boat. 
Now, maybe they left in a hurry. I, I don't know. They were maybe left unexpectedly, but they get out of the water and they realize we've no bread. And Jesus is, Jesus is still thinking about the encounter with the Pharisees, and so he uses this as a teachable moment. You see what he says in verse 15? He charged them, saying, Take heed, beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, the leaven of the Pharisees, well, we've already discussed that. It's self-righteousness. It's a religious attitude that says we can be made holy in the sight of God through our own actions. Leaven or, or yeast was a common expression at the time to suggest some sort of badness or wickedness that, although it seems little, it spreads throughout the whole. And, and Paul mentions in Galatians 5, a little leaven leavens the whole love. Yeast spreads through the whole dough. It causes a change in the whole thing. So it is with the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. A little goes a long way. It, it creeps throughout a person. It spreads into the whole of them. And when it spreads in us, it leads to the main problem that Jesus is warning against. The main issue for the disciples at this point is the issue of unbelief. You see, if you think you can make yourself holy, well then you've no need of a saviour. You might be hearing all the things that I'm saying and all the things that Mark has taught us about Jesus, all of the miracles, and you might think, you know, I can be like Jesus. I can do that. I'm going to be good like Jesus is good. Maybe if I'm good, God will accept me. But you can't be good like Jesus is good. None of us can. We are sinners in need of salvation. Now, having been saved, we should try and follow the pattern of Christ. The, the work of sanctification in the believer's life is one of becoming more like Jesus. But we live that way because we have been saved, not in order to try and save ourselves. The Pharisees won't believe in Jesus because they don't think they need Jesus. We see this kind of sinful self-righteousness in the church today, don't we? It creeps in. Soon we're condemning one another for not holding to the right man-made rules. This is my default. I have to admit I'm, I need to be careful of this myself. Jesus says, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. But Jesus also warns, beware the leaven of and this is another matter this is the other end of the spectrum I don't know why Herod came into the mind of Jesus at this point but Herod's problem is also unbelief but it comes from an entirely other direction Herod didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God he didn't trust in Christ for salvation but although it has the same outcome the leaven of Herod is not self-righteousness like the Pharisees the leaven of Herod is worldliness. It's sinfulness that, that won't repent because it loves sin too much. The Pharisees thought they could make themselves clean. Herod is all too happy being dirty. We saw that in the instance with John the Baptist. Jesus' warning here in Mark 8, well, it reminds me of the parable in Luke's Gospel of the prodigal son. Most of you will have heard of the prodigal son before. 
The teaching of that parable is best understood when we realise that both sons are sinful. Only the younger son, in the end, is willing to repent. The older son is like the Pharisees, trying to make his father love him through his efforts and work. But the younger son's sin, well, it's like Herod's, isn't it? It's more obvious. He has a lifestyle of worldliness and debauchery. And remember that Herod, well, Herod heard John the Baptist gladly. He liked to hear John. He, he found the teaching interesting. But while he liked the teaching, he loved his sin. He wasn't willing to give up something he loved for the sake of something he liked. And that's how John met his end. Here on the boat with the disciples, Jesus warns against the leaven of Herod. Because Herod's way of life can lead one into unbelief. In the same way as the self-righteousness of the Pharisees can. But there's another way. Not the sinfulness of Herod, not the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. There's a third way. <coughs> not helping yourself, not basking in sinfulness. The third way is to believe. To believe that Jesus has the bread you need. To believe that Jesus has done everything to save you from sin and hell. To believe that Jesus is more attractive than any sin we could be drawn to. To allow Jesus to become that thing that we love most deeply. The 19th century Scottish Presbyterian Thomas Chalmers called this the expulsive power of a new affection. He reasoned that love for Christ would replace any other idol or sinfulness that lives in us. Our affection for Jesus expels anything that might take his place as Lord of our lives. And so on the boat, Jesus teaching the disciples is teaching us, don't be like the self-righteous Pharisee, and don't be like the sin-loving Herod. Beware of both. They lead to unbelief. Instead, today, God's word is calling you to believe. To believe in Christ. Only by believing in him, being fed by his word, can you have your sins forgiven and receive everlasting life. We see in the rest of our passage, the disciples, they still don't get it. They've seen all the signs. They've seen the feeding miracles. They still don't realise who is in the boat with them. They're worried about not having bread. They don't yet believe that Jesus can feed their bread. He will provide them with all things, just as he did for the 5,000 Jews and the 4,000 Gentiles. Just as he did for the paralysed man, for the demoniac in the graveyard, the woman with the issue of blood, for Jairus and his daughter the Syrophoenician woman and her daughter, the list goes on and on. The signs are there. But the disciples do not yet believe. Jesus reminds them of what they have been witnesses to, how many baskets they themselves lifted. But still their ears have not yet been opened to hear and to understand. They're like a deaf man. Their eyes have not yet been opened to see. 
just like the man we're going to meet in next week's passage. I urge you today, friends, don't be like the disciples. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Instead, look to Jesus. Hear and understand. See who he is and believe. Trust in him. Come to him for the forgiveness of your sins. Feed on his word and receive everlasting life. Let us pray together.